Uh, you got your Bible with you this weekend? I'd invite you to take it out at all of our campuses and open it. You ready for this? To the book of Revelation. Revelation. I know some of you are excited about this. Probably more excited than you should be. Um, I, the Christian tradition I grew up in talked a lot about the end times. It was one of our favorite themes. We had our annual prophecy conferences, our end time movies, our rapture board games. Um, and so one of the results was that I grew up obsessed with and frankly, a little terrified of the rapture. If for any reason, that's when Jesus comes back and all those people go meet him in the air. If for any reason, I could not find my parents around the house. I knew it was because they had been raptured and I'd been left behind. Um, I'd run through the house yelling, mom, mom, to see if her clothes had fallen neatly into a pile as she ascended uh, to be with Jesus. Um, I had this recurring dream uh, when I was in elementary school that Jesus would come back. I literally had this dream three or four times where Jesus would come back and I'd see all the people go up to meet him in the air and I would start to rise up to meet him and I'd get to about the top of my house and then I'd drop back down to the earth because that was all the faith that I had. Um, so I was terrified of it. My wife says she had a similar experience growing up and so one night early in our marriage we were drifting off to sleep, lying in bed there, and she starts talking about the rapture. And so as quietly as I could, I slipped out of bed and laid there on the floor beside it. So after like four or five minutes, she's like, JD, JD, she starts smacking the, you know, the place beside me. And I'm, um, it's just my way of helping her stay ready and, and be, a, you know, be good. So anyway, when I was in high school, a little book came out um, that got instant popularity. It was called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Is Coming Back in 1988. Uh, a lot of you weren't even born in 1988, but some of you that were around then might remember that book. It was actually really compelling. Uh, it's, it, you know, it says you can't know the day or the hour that Jesus will come back, but this guy said you could know the three-day span, and it was going to be September 12th through 14th of 1988. I went to a Christian school, and so that was required reading. And, and uh, I remember my soccer coach sitting us all down in the bleachers after practice and saying, well, I'm pretty convinced. So guys, we're going to sit here for about an hour, and we're just going to wait and see if it happens. It's pretty terrifying to be a 10th grader and to have, especially because he looks at me and says, JD, if it happens, I want you to make sure that all the equipment gets put back in the locker room and, and locked back up. <laughs> so you may or may not have had experiences like that, but I know for a fact that some of you still have some Y2K food tucked in a closet somewhere. Um, I will be honest with you. I am glad that we are not obsessed like that at this church, but Sometimes, to be honest, I think we have fallen into an opposite and perhaps even more pernicious error, and that is we rarely think or talk about the end of time at all. To many of us, it seems like something only crazy people or religious zealots would ever think or talk much about. But consider this, listen, the second coming of Christ is the most talked about doctrine in the Bible. It is the most talked about doctrine in the Bible. The Bible talks about the first coming of Christ a measly 129 times. And we got a whole holiday for that one where we give each other presents. It talks about the second coming of Christ 329 times, nearly two and a half as many times. For every one prophecy in the Bible concerning Christ's first coming, there are at least eight that talk about his second coming. So you tell me which one's more important. You tell me which one is more worthy of our focus, which brings us to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a book about the end times. It's a book about the second coming of Christ. Now, um, be honest here by raise, uh, raising your hand. How many of you, when you think about the book of Revelation, you find the book intriguing but confusing, exciting 
but frankly, a little scary. Why don't you raise your hand? Uh, I, I can't see you at our campuses, but I'm sure that's just about everybody. It is certainly easy to get lost in it. All that talk about raptures and bowls of judgment and beasts and false prophets, a gigantic woman who is called the mother of all prostitutes, the four horsemen, poison locusts, human eating dragons, the number 666 and whatever that's about. And so, yes, there's a lot to be confused by, but fear not, Summit Church, your pastor is a trained professional, all right? I went to seminary where I mastered divinity, uh, which I've always thought was a little presumptuous of a title. Uh, I mastered God when I was in seminary. What does that mean? Uh, at, any, at any rate, I am now certified to take you safely in and out of this book, ensuring that no one gets left behind, okay? So there we go. That was free. Um, listen, sometimes even... I get confused as to what all the symbols point to, but the big picture point is crystal clear. And that's what we're gonna focus on for the next couple of weeks here at the Summit Church. And we get into it right here in chapter one. So if you've got your Bible, Revelation chapter one, verse one, here's how John the apostle, same guy who wrote the gospel of John, by the way, opens the book. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And here we encounter our first mystery. You see, revelation is a word that means unveiling, pulling back, like pulling back the curtain to show something. And the question that we ask is, what is it that is being unveiled? What is the revelation of? You see, is it a revelation of Jesus Christ or is it a revelation by Jesus Christ of the things that must soon take place? You see how you could read that either way? Is it a revelation of Jesus or a revelation from Jesus? The way that it is written in Greek is ambiguous. So you don't know immediately, the answer is both. It is both the revelation of Jesus and a revelation from Jesus of the things that must soon take place. That is the central thing for you to keep in mind as you read the book of Revelation. The point of Revelation is not to give you a specific timeline of events or or help you identify various historical figures as various of the beasts. The point is not to help you figure out which beast is Vladimir Putin. Just stop it, okay? The point is to pull back the curtain of history so that you can see the powers at work behind the politics on earth. You see, people read the book of Revelation with all the dragons and the beasts and they imagine it as this delusional fantasy world. It is actually the most accurate depiction of the world that you'll ever read. It is seeing the world with spiritual eyes. It is the world as God sees it. It is the powers and the politics of the world that are in fact an illusion. This is the unveiling. This is the unmasking. This is pulling back the curtain so you see things as they really are. It reminds me of one of my favorite Nicolas Cage movies, Face Off. You say, is that one really your favorite? I say, they're all my favorite. Nicolas Cage in this movie goes into a coma and John Travolta um, steals his face, has a doctor cut off his face and put it onto John Travolta because they're they're about the same build. And uh, uh, John Travolta wants Nicolas Cage's identity so he can get some information and so he can steal some stuff. Um, Well, Nicolas Cage then wakes up from his coma. He doesn't have a face. That's always a bad day. Um, So he convinces the doctor to put John Travolta's face, which he's cut off of John Travolta, back onto Nicolas Cage. And so they are now running around the earth and no one knows who is Nicolas Cage and no one knows who's John Travolta. And therein lies the the drama because nobody knows who is who. And so of course the climax of the movie is when you figure out who is actually who and who's been doing what. Think of the book of Revelation as the face-off of the New Testament. I know I might get my seminary degree revoked for actually making that analogy, but I've always wanted to preach a message where I could say that Jesus was the truer and better Nicolas Cage, and that's as close as I can get. Um, You see, listen, the church at this point, the church at this point in history is not doing particularly well. 
all the apostles have been martyred except for John. We're in 95 AD, and John has been exiled as the remain living apostle to the Isle of Patmos, where he is imprisoned in a cave. Christians are being hunted down like dogs and fed to the lions, in part because they were wrongly blamed for the burning of Rome and other problems throughout the, Jew, uh, the Roman Empire. Roman and Jewish leaders have made it illegal almost everywhere to be a Christian. The movement is still growing, but it seems like the bad guys are definitely winning. And so Jesus appears to John the Apostle in this dark little cave. I've actually been to the Isle of Patmos and been in the cave where they think John got the revelation. I mean, it's a depressing place. Suddenly, you, you're filled with the presence of Jesus, and Jesus gives John a revelation of how God sees the world and a forecast of what God plans to do in the world. I would tell you that you and I need to see this vision just as badly as John and his church needed to see it. Because maybe we're not going through the tribulation yet, but we wrestle with the same questions. We're over, we feel overwhelmed by disease or discouragement or dysfunctional people. And so this is the unveiling. This is seeing the world the way that God sees it. This is seeing where it's headed. It's showing you what God is doing in it. Two things I want to focus on to that end. The first is the unveiling of our world. Jesus pulls back the curtain on the politics that are going on. And then we're going to um, go to the unveiling of Jesus himself. The unveiling of our world, that's in Revelation 17. So I want you to leave Revelation 1 and fly over to Revelation 17, where we'll spend a few minutes, and then we're going to come back to Revelation 1, where we'll see the unveiling of Jesus himself. Revelation chapter 17, the unveiling of our world. You encounter a really strange picture. Let me just, I don't know any better way to do this than just to, to, to walk you through it. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, the seven bowls are a series of judgments God is pouring out on the earth. One of them came to me and said, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and 10 horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of all prostitutes. Some of you parents are looking for biblical names for your kids. If you have a girl, I would not suggest that one because it means mother of all prostitutes. Um, and of the abominations of the earth. Verse 6, and I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. This woman, this prostitute, represents all the enemies of God, all those who do not belong to Jesus. You notice verse 2, that her customers are kings from every kingdom and their inhabitants all over the earth. We're not talking about one people or one culture. We're talking about all cultures and all people. Hers is a universal kingdom. You see, there's essentially only two kingdoms in the world. There is hers and there is Jesus' kingdom, and you belong either to one or the other few things that you'll notice about her if you're taking notes you may want to jot down first she's a prostitute she's a prostitute that's not because she's all about sex it's because sin at its core listen to this is spiritual adultery at its core sin is not bad deeds sin at its core is giving to something else what you should give to God we were created to love and worship God to serve God as the center of our lives to find our fulfillment our security and our greatest delight in him the primary sin of the human race was, the Apostle Paul explains in the book of Romans, that we put ourselves in the place that God was supposed to be. 
We worshiped and served ourselves rather than the creator. So rather than finding our hope and our, our satisfaction and our delight in him, rather being submitted to him, we submitted to ourselves and we found all those things in us. So she as a prostitute represents the, the distracted or diverted love of the human race. Second, she's called Babylon. She is called Babylon. Babylon is the name of a city with a long history in the Bible and it symbolizes man's rebellion against God. We first encounter Babylon in Genesis 11, where it is called Babel. There the human race unites to build a tower in rebellion to God. The human race was attempting to demonstrate its glory, its power, and its potential, what it could do independent of God. This is what we can do. This is our accomplishments. It's what we want. The essence of the spirit of Babylon is, I will do what I want to do. Rather than what God wants me to do, I'll be the point, I'll accomplish it, I'll do it in my strength, I'll be the center. The theme song of Babylon is Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear, I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I did it my way. For what is a man, what has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Yes, it was my way. This is the song they sing in Babylon, and it is the song they sing in hell. You do not want that song on the playlist of your life. Third, she's really attractive. Now, you may not seem think that she's that attractive because she's sitting on a beast, and that is not typically how a guy envisions a high girl, but John uses several images to convey that she's really attractive. Verse four, she's arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. She entices people from all over the world. Even John himself, verse six, is awestruck by her. Living with her, verse two, is intoxicating for a while because she promises so much. Listen, y'all, sin, sin is enjoyable for a season and anybody that tells you differently is lying to you. I can still remember one of my old youth pastors saying, if sin ain't fun, you ain't doing it right, right? It's fun. Sin is fun for a season. It just ends in a place that you don't want to be. You don't want to be. She's really attractive. Fourth, and this one may come as a surprise to you, she is super religious. She is super religious. One of her companions, you'll find out, is the false prophet. It wasn't in the verses we read. It's later. False religion. False religion engages in a lot of activity for God. But listen, it does so without ever putting God back into the central place he belongs in our hearts. I want to say that again, because this can be a little hard to get your mind around. Um, every false religion in the world will get really, really busy for God, but without putting God back in the right place in our heart. I'll give you just two examples of it. First, every false religion in the world, every single one teaches you that you can save yourself. If you're good enough, you work hard enough, you give enough money, you pray enough, then you'll be saved. The list that each religion provides is different, but the message is basically the same. Work hard enough, say this enough, pray this enough, go here, be good, love people. You can earn heaven or nirvana or whatever. And see what that does is it makes man his own savior, which means that we're gonna get all the glory for our salvation and we're in a negotiating position with God. God, I did this, so you owe me that. The gospel teaches exactly the opposite. The gospel teaches we could do nothing to save ourselves, so God had to do it all for us, and all we can do is receive it as a gift, and he's the one that gets the glory for it. It also means that we owe him everything, and our love and gratefulness for his salvation that he gave us by grace makes us willing to give him everything in our lives. 
So what religion does is it makes you very busy, but it keeps yourself as your own savior so that you are still the primary hero in your life. Here's a second second example of her religion. The message um, that we hear, unfortunately, often in churches all over America, the message that you can get God back in your life without ever surrendering yourself fully to God. I've told you before, it's embodied in that bumper sticker. I see a lot of people, or a lot of people used to have in their car, God is my co-pilot. And by that, they mean I need God to give me guidance and companionship. And man, I need him to give me suggestions about where to go. And I need to, to, to know how to avoid this and how to stay out of this jam. And when my car breaks down, I need him to fix it. And what I've told you is if God is your co-pilot, somebody's in the wrong seat. Because when you come to God, you don't come to him to get help and where you're going in life. You come to him and you say, it's your car and I stole it. And so here are the keys back to your car and I'm going to get in the back seat and you tell me where we're going. Because my car quit running anyway and it's broken down. It's a fundamentally different way of coming to God. And so the false prophet, the woman, the prostitute loves religion that keeps man at the center of fifth. She has successfully seduced a lot of God's people. Here's how I know this. Go to the next chapter, chapter 18, verse 4. Here you have this warning. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. It is possible to be one of God's people and still be swept up in her enchantments. In fact, I would say it is more than just possible. I would say it is what is happening to the majority of us. Here's why I say that. Studies show that our lifestyles as professing Christians look just like those of the world around us. We are just as sexually immoral inside the church as people are outside the church. We are just as self-centered as the world. We are just as materialistic. Our spending patterns are strikingly similar to those of the world around us. Only 6% of Bible-believing American Christians tithe. 6%. Now, here in the Summit Church, we're at 18% of us tithe, which is like three times as much. That still means four out of five of you have never learned to obey God in that area of your life. In parenting, the priorities of Christian parents for their kids look virtually identical to those of non-Christian parents for their kids. So we cart our kids all over town in the same way that non-Christian parents do, teaching our kids to be good at the same things the world says they should be good at, like sports and getting into the right college. And the effects are evident. 60 to 80% of our kids are going to leave Christianity behind once they hit 18 years old. You see, when you live with the values of this woman, you bring upon yourselves the plagues of this woman. You rob yourselves of God's blessing, and we rob ourselves of spiritual power. There's a guy I quote a lot, Charles Spurgeon, a 19th century century British pastor. He's who I quote when I don't quote C.S. Lewis. I got to get one British guy in there somewhere. Um, Charles Spurgeon said this, put your finger on any prosperous age in the church's history, when the church was really thriving, when the church was making a difference, and you'll find a little marginal note that says, in this age, people could readily see where the church began and where the world ended. We can hardly tell that today, which is why we are so powerless to affect and transform our culture. Another Christian leader says it like this, the greatest challenge facing Bible-believing American Christians is not persecution from the world, it is seduction by the world. So see, I would say this is an important question for you and your family. Are you more shaped by Babylon or the Bible? Who's the center of your life? I I assume by the fact that you're in here is because you want God to be a part of your life. Have you ever come to God and said, you know, it's your car, I stole it. All that I have, all that I am, all that I ever hope to be belongs to you. This is your money, your resources. What do you want from my life? 
Who, who do you believe owns your stuff? Do you think that you own it and you give some of it generously to God or you say you own all of it? You can tell by whether or not you're obedient in these various areas of your life. Whose glory are you living for? Whose will are you pursuing? Here's number six. She hates Jesus, this prostitute. Verse nine, the beast she's sitting on is described as having seven heads, which John says symbolizes seven mountains and seven kings. Now, scholars say this could refer to either seven Roman emperors or seven empires that have come and gone or are to come before Jesus comes back. And what they have in common is that they're all drunk with the blood of God's people because this woman has always hated Jesus and his people. Listen, Summit Church, you need to get your mind around this. In every generation, true followers of Jesus have been hated and will be hated by the predominant world system under the control of this prostitute. Some of the empires that have hated her have been religious empires. Some of them even have the name Christian attached to them. Yet they have persecuted the followers of Jesus for preaching, the true followers of Jesus, for preaching that salvation was a free gift of God's grace and not something you could earn by religious zeal so that nobody could boast. They have hated the followers of Jesus for saying that religion is not all about earthly power and control, but following Jesus instead means emptying yourself and becoming a servant of all. They've hated them and they've killed the true followers of Jesus in non-religious empires. The prostitute is hated and persecuted the people of God for saying that Jesus is in charge and that he's the Lord and that he makes the rules about morality. That you don't look within and find out what's true for you and what's right for you and what sexual um, preferences you have. You look to above to the Lord of history and determine what he says about those things. Now, I see it right here in this church. I'd say that most of the people who come in each week think of themselves as religious. Man, they want God as a part of their lives. They love the music and they like the uplifting feeling they get during the music and they love the, the message most of the time and they like to learn the Bible and they wanna think about how to have God as a part of their lives. Man, but then I'll say something like, uh, I'll say something like, you know, God's word says that sex is reserved for marriage. And so the fact that you're living with or sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance before you're married is sin and that puts you out of fellowship with God. And all of a sudden that starts to make people mad and they go home and they write me nasty emails. That's because you want to be religious like the prostitute is religious. You want to have it your way with God's blessing. Those who love the prostitute, those who want to be their own Lord, those who want to glorify themselves as their own saviors, who want to depend on themselves, have always hated those who say that Jesus is the only Lord and can be our only savior. Jesus said in John 16, said, church, don't be discouraged when they hate you. Don't be discouraged when they lie about you and when they mistreat you. That's what they did to me. And what's that sort they're going to do to my people in every generation? So some at church, don't be surprised when they misrepresent your intelligence, when they, mis um, they construe your convictions, when they malign your motives. A little interesting thing from Roman um, history, church history, that might blow your mind. The early church had two reputations in the first century. They're not what you think they are. Reputation number one, they had the reputation for being cannibals. Everybody thought of the early Christians as cannibals. You say, what in the world? Because they always talked about eating the body and blood of Jesus. And so that got twisted into a lie that in their church services, they ate people. The second reputation they had was for being, get this, atheists. You're like, what? Yeah, atheists, because Christians taught that God was a spirit and he was not worshiped in temples made with human hands. They twisted that to say, they wanna tear down all the social fabric and establishment of the empire. Now, neither of those things are true. But that's what they did, that's what they twisted because they hated them. They weren't true. My point 
is that they're going to do the same thing to us. Now, hear me. My point is not that the church doesn't have any problems or that everything that gets said about us is not true. Unfortunately, we do have a lot of problems, and we need to humbly and repentantly address those. But I'm trying to get you to see that the prostitute's hatred of us goes far beyond our problems. The prostitute's hatred of us is a hatred of Jesus. And so if you're thinking that one day we could get good enough that everybody's going to speak well of us, one day we'll be good enough that CNN and the New York Times are going to do articles praising us, that's an illusion and it's never going to happen. Christian college students, you understand this, that professors that are under the influence of the prostitute are going to make fun of you in classrooms. They're going to mock you in fraternities and sororities. They're going to misrepresent your intelligence. They're going to twist your convictions. They're going to malign your motives. Don't be surprised, Jesus said. They did the same thing to me, and I don't want you to be surprised or discouraged when it happens. Here's number seven, last one. She is destroyed. She is destroyed. This is, again, in chapter 18. Let me just read you what the text says. Chapter 18, verse 6. Pay her back the way she also paid others, and double it according to her works. In the cup in which she mixed, mix a double portion of wrath for her, as much as she glorified herself and lived luxuriously. Give her that much torment and grief. Because she says in her heart, I'm a queen and I will never see grief. For this reason, her plagues will come in one day, death and grief and famine. She will be burned up with fire because the Lord who judges her is mighty. You see, Revelation shows you there are two rival kingdoms with two rival kings. The kingdoms are called Babylon and Zion or Jerusalem. There are two rival kings, and one king is you and the other king is Jesus, and both those kings can't win in the end, and at the end when it's all said and done and the veil's pulled back, Jesus is the one who reigns. And those who stood with Jesus will stand eternally in heaven with him, and those who stood against Jesus in life will perish forever apart from him in eternal death. And John says, this is the curtain pulled back on the world. That's what it looks like. That's what's going on, and that's the end of it. Now, let's go back to the first chapter, like I told you, because John wants to make sure that we also see Jesus unveiled. We've seen the world unveiled. Let's look at Jesus unveiled. Go back to chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1, starting verse 10. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit, John said, on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a voice, a loud voice, like a trumpet. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one, like a son of man, in other words, he looked like a human being, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. That is, by the way, the garments that the high priest would wear. So you got a man who is the Jewish high priest. Verse 14, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, which is just an image of saying judgment. It's like he's got the ultimate work boot on, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. We're going to find out those seven stars represent the seven churches, representing all churches that Jesus is holding there in his hand. Verse 16, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. The words of the tongue that had once spoke healing and given sight to the blind and raised the dead and multiplied the loaves and the fish is now coming out like a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. John says, I couldn't even look at it because it was going to burn my eyes out. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. Now I want you to keep in mind, Jesus had been John's BFF on earth. I told you the same guy that wrote the Revelation wrote the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, I've told you this before, John rather confidently describes himself as the one that Jesus loved, which I've always thought took a lot of nerve to put in print. You know, Jesus loves all of you, but I'm his favorite. That's what John, that's what John says to us. 
John must have felt pretty confident about his relationship with Jesus. In fact, at the Last Supper, John chapter 13, um, John tells us he reclined his head and leaned it back on Jesus' chest during dinner. Now, I'm going to tell you, I got some close guy friends. But if any one of them leans their head back on my chest during dinner, we're going to have a change in our relationship status. <laughs> Suffice it to say, John and Jesus were close. They were, they, were, they, they were tender. They were best friends. This is the first time they are seeing each other in almost 60 years. What would you expect that reunion to be like? If you had seen a, hadn't seen a beloved friend, your best friend in 60 years, who had saved you, by the way, what do you think is going to happen? John falls at Jesus' feet as though he were dead. That's not even a figure of speech. He literally thought he was going to die. People have this image of Jesus as a sad, jobless guy with tears in his eyes who wandered around in a robe giving platitudes and talking a lot about his feelings. Well, first, that's not true anywhere. But in Revelation, you see an entirely different picture of Jesus altogether. He's not a man of sorrows with tears in his eyes. In fact, I hope this is not irreverent, but he sounds like a guy you'd never want to meet in a back alley. He's got on steel-toed shoes and crazy hair and a, a stank eye and a white shirt, and he's looking for a fight. And that's the image that you're getting of Jesus here. Now, is this a different Jesus than the one John knew? Is this a different? No, of course not. See, truth be told, Jesus had always had this kind of power. But throughout his ministry on earth, it had been veiled. Now, I'll give you an example. We've talked several, for several weeks about the feeding of the 5,000. And people hear that miracle, and they're like, oh, that's so quaint. He took the five loaves and the two fish and fed the 5,000 men and their families. Isn't that special? And I read a physicist the other day who was considering the question. This is so nerdy. He was considering the question of how much power it would take to generate the matter to create the food necessary to feed the 5,000 people and their families. Because you remember Jesus created that food out of thin air standing on a hillside. Started with five loaves and two fish, fed 15,000 people. He multiplied. It means he created matter. So the scientists assumed that each person would, you know, eat about eight, ounce, eight ounces of food. And using Einstein's famous matter to energy formula, everybody knows what that is, right? E equals mc squared, that's right. He concluded that the amount of energy necessary to create that much matter to create that much food would be equivalent to all the electrical power available on earth working at 100% output 100% of the time for four years straight just to create the energy, to create the matter, to create that meal. And Jesus did it standing on a hillside wearing a robe without breaking a sweat. The power was always there. You just couldn't see it. But now, Revelation 1, it is unveiled and it is, appears in all of its strength. So the question is, why is Jesus appearing this way to John now? Why not reappear to John as John knew him on earth? Because see, John and the church are about to go through a time of intense persecution and suffering. And brothers and sisters, when you go through an intense time of persecution, you don't need a sentimental Jesus who simply makes you feel warm at night. You don't need a life coach who is offering you words of encouragement. You need to see Jesus as he really is, as a God who raised from the dead and who controls all things and holds him in his hand. See, watch, watch what happens next. Watch what happens next. Verse 17, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. Fear not, John. I'm the first and I'm the last. In other words, John, I'm absolutely and totally in control. I'm the first and the last. It means I was there when it started, and I'll be the last one standing. And that also means I'm everything in the middle. In the meantime, I'm guiding everything. B, if I'm A and I'm Z, I'm also B through Y, guiding it all to my appointed ends. You know, this fall, y'all, I memorized the first chapter of Ephesians with some friends of mine. 
And one of the phrases that, that just got stuck in my mind that keeps reappearing in various times, I can't get it out of my mind, it's a, Paul, a statement Paul makes in Ephesians 1.11 where he says, we've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Jesus has a purpose. His purpose on earth, he's made pretty clear. He's building the church and using the church to spread the gospel throughout the earth. The purpose of him who works, not most things, not things in the church, all things according to the counsel of his will, which means there is not one stray molecule in all the universe. There is not one stray cancer cell. There is not one stray spouse. There is not one stray child. There is nothing that is outside of the one who is the first and the last. This week, I read it again in my time with God um, in Matthew, a way that Jesus says the exact same thing. He said, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? They're insignificant to everybody, and yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. You can't get more micro than that. The hairs of your head, the birds in the sky that nobody pays any attention to if a bird falls to the ground outside in the woods. Anybody hear it? I don't know, but God knows it. He's somehow a part of it. Now, what I'm not saying, let me be very clear on this. What I'm not saying is that, is that God is the one making anything happen to you. We live in a fallen world, and the result is a lot of people do a lot of terrible things to each other. What I am saying is that Jesus promises that none of those things are out of his control, and he promises to use every single one of them as a part of his perfect purposes in your life to glorify his name and to extend salvation through you. And I know you can't see it all right now. Many of his purposes for what he does remain hidden until eternity, until suddenly it's unveiled. And then you see that not one molecule was out of place and he accomplished everything he had set himself to. I've compared it before to a tapestry. You know, a tapestry where you see one of these rugs, it's got this exquisite, beautiful design um, on one side. Nothing is out of place. But then you look on the back side of that tapestry and it looks, all the threads look like a chaotic, jumbled mess. I've told you that life for us right now often feels like the backside of that tapestry. And it feels like things are out of control. And why is this disease going over here? Why is this happening over here? What happens in the book of Revelation is Jesus takes that tapestry and he flips it on the other side and said, not one thing was out of place. There was not one stray thing that was happening. I was using it all for the purposes I had for the church and for your life. So Jesus goes on, I'm the living one. I died. I died for you, John, by crucifixion and bold. I'm alive forevermore. Now I got the keys of death and Hades, which is, of course, another word for hell. John, not only am I immensely powerful, I died for you so that you would never have to face death. And I'm now using my greatest power, my greatest power, the keys of death and Hades. I am using them to perfect my purposes in you. I've got the keys to everything that could ever threaten you. Death and Hades, and I got the keys to Caesar's kingdom. John, what are you afraid of? John, you really feel like Caesar's winning? The only legacy he's going to leave is a cheap pizza place nobody wants to go to. John, you really feel like I can't control cancer? John, do you think that I don't know you need a job? Are you really worried about your marriage? John, look at me. Look at me. Look at my power. Look at my control. Look at my love. John, why do you doubt? That powerful hand sitting on John's shoulder that can which calms storms, that hand that creates matter out of nothing is nail scarred for John's sin and is the proof that every single thing that John is doing in the world is not out of Jesus, or Jesus is doing in the world is not out of Jesus' control and that he is pursuing his purpose that he has set forth from the foundation of the world and not one of his plans for you or your family will ever fail. So see, I got two points I think we should end with. 
Here's point number one. Do you need to see Jesus this way this weekend? Do you need to see Jesus this way this weekend? When you go through a, a time of suffering or persecution, whether it's caused by the beast of revelation or the, or the mockery of your friends or a professor, when you go through a time with a lost job, what you need to see is this vision of Jesus. Jesus opens up the book of Revelation saying, excuse me, John opens up the book of Revelation saying, there he is, there he is, standing at the end of history, the first and the last, the defeater of death, the one with all these things in his hand, and he wins, I see it. I, I, I think I've told you before about the time that I, I binge watched like three seasons of 24. Um, I'm a late adopter on pretty much everything. I know some of you might find that hard to believe, but I really am. And so enough people talk about it. I'm like, I got to watch this show. And so my wife and I, I, I think we bought a season and borrowed a season from a friend. I think we watched three seasons in 72 hours. I'm not sure that's even physically possible, but I think we pulled it off. And I remember in one of those seasons, um, you know, it, it looks really bad for Jack. You remember this? I mean, I think in one of them he died. Am I right about that? And, and the season ended and I was like, I think he died. Veronica, I think he died. And, and then I looked down because I got like season, you know, three or four on the floor and I, the next season I, I pick it up and I'm like, and there's, you know, Jack on the cover, you know? And I'm like, something's not adding up here because it looks like he died, yet his face is on the next cover and he's going to star for the next several seasons. In fact, he's going to stick around long enough. He's going to get a new show and this time he's going to be the president, right? <laughs> Things turn out well for Jack Bauer because we see where it's all headed. What, what the book of Revelation is, is John essentially saying his face is still at the last. It's on the cover. I see him standing. I see that he's the first and the last, which means he's got everything in the middle. I see that there's not one stray molecule. I see that even in this dark, dank cave in the middle of the Isle of Patmos, that the sovereign Lord Jesus is in control and that he rules history, not Caesar, and that there is nothing that is he has purpose that is not going to fail. And y'all, that is true in John's day. It is true in our day. It'll be true tomorrow. It'll be true when the four horsemen come or whenever that is. It's gonna be true on the day that you get a diagnosis of cancer. It's gonna be true on the day that you lose your job. It's gonna be true on the day um, that your spouse walks out on you. There is not a single day in all of history that Jesus Christ is not Lord over. And if you pull back the veil and you look to the end, you'll see he's always been sovereign over it. And maybe that's what you need to see this week is you need to see Jesus like this. He's not a Jesus who just comes and runs and helps you in the middle of a jam. He is a Jesus who is sovereign over it all, who is prophesied and perfected things in you and not one thing that he does, not a hair out of your head will fall without his permission because it's all according to his plan. Here's the second thing that I, I take away from this. Do you see what this shows you about what we should be about? Do you see what this shows us about what we should be about? Here's what I mean. If this is what Jesus is, is doing on earth, if he's got these seven stars in his hand, if that shows that what you put in your right hand is what you're, you're doing at the moment. If the seven stars representing the seven churches, which represent all churches, are in his hand, and that's his focus, shouldn't that be what we are about also? But I keep saying this, and I have to think that maybe the Holy Spirit just has this for our church. So I'm going to say it without apology. I know not all of you are called to work in the church like I am. But if Jesus shed his blood for the church and what's in his right hand right now is the church, it ought to be the center of your life. It means you should not be a spectator that shows up on the weekend for a religious pep talk. You ought to be involved in the community and you ought to be pursuing the mission of the church. If Jesus put his blood into it, you should put your life into it. You understand? You ought to make this the center. 
You ought to make this the center of your life. And the church's one commission is spreading the gospel, which means that is what you should be giving the primary place of your life to. You're not all called to ministry, but you're all called to see the gospel spread to the farthest corners of the earth. And there are still so many people who have never heard The point of the book of Revelation is not to give you details for idle speculation about the nature of the second coming. The point is to motivate you to give your life to make sure everybody knows about his first coming. Because see, in his first coming, he came bringing salvation. The second time he comes, he's bringing judgment. And not everybody knows about the first coming, which means they're not ready for the second coming. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time, which means that if I understand this, I'm going to say you're sovereign. I know what you're doing. So I'm going to give my life. I'm going to give my time, my treasures, my talent, because I know what you're up to. John says he's coming back soon. Every eye is going to see him. These are the things, verse 1, that are going to shortly take place. The time is near. Behold, verse 7, he is coming. Now, church, live accordingly. That's seen behind the veil, and that's what God wants you to be up to. Why don't you bow your heads at all of our campuses, if you would. Can we just think through those questions? Do you need to see Jesus this way, this weekend? What hair has fallen out of your head? What sparrow has dropped out of your sky? Do you feel right now that you're in the Isle of Patmos, forgotten, forsaken? Can you just see Jesus standing above it all? the first and the last. Now, let me ask kind of a sub-question, as, as many of you think about that. There are some of you here right now that are walking in rebellion to Jesus, and you know it. You understand Jesus is not a convenient religious fixture you add to your life. He's the sovereign Lord of history, and you're going to look at him one day in the face. John, his best friend, couldn't look at his face because it was shining like the fun, sun in full strength. Revelation 6 says when people who are not Jesus' friends see that face, they're going to call out on the mountains to cover them, to hide them from that face. You're going to answer to him one day. And some of you just need to repent. You need to repent and say, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry because I've lived according to my way, not your way, and I surrender to you right now. And I receive you as my Savior. I accept the gift that you gave of dying for me on the cross so that I could be saved. I receive it right now. Here's that last question. Have you made Jesus' agenda your agenda? Is sharing the gospel the most important part of your life? And we got a chance right now, church, in the coming weeks to bring people to these Deepak services. That's not the only way to apply this, but it's certainly a way. Maybe right now you think of somebody that you need to invite and you just pray for them. At all of our campuses, you just pray for them. God, help me to bring them so that they can hear. Let me leave you to meditate on these things for just a moment in the Holy Spirit and then our, our worship teams will come and they'll, they'll lead us to worship.